Hey, good morning. At this time, I'd like to uh, dismiss our children, ages four to six, to Redeemer Kids. So if you guys want to gather over, right, right over here with, uh, with Jamie and Kyle, and they will take you guys on to uh, Redeemer Kids. Hey, what are you guys uh, studying about today? Say it again, sorry. Saul disobeying the Lord. Okay. Well, hey, you guys can go ahead and go. Just know we're going to be praying for you in, a, in just a few moments. Guys, we want to make sure that we do pray for our children who are going to be hearing from the Word of God. They're going to be hearing about Saul and his, his disobedience to the Lord and the consequences of that. And so we want to pray that our children, who are a blessing from the Lord, have hearts and ears to hear. And we also want to pray that same thing for ourselves, because we're at the time in our worship experience this morning where we, uh, where we hear from God through His Word, and we want to make sure that we have Uh, ears and hearts to hear. So why don't you bow your heads with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word teaches and rebukes and corrects and trains us. And Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to understand and respond to your word. And we pray that for ourselves here, and we also pray that for our children who are in Redeemer Kids as they, as they learn about Saul's disobedience to you and the consequences of that. But then also we also pray for the children who are up in Redeemer Tots and, and what they'll be hearing today from your word. We pray even at the very, very young age that you would be at work giving them ears to hear and hearts to understand and respond to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have a Bible with you today, uh, I will invite you to turn to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 1 through 10 this morning. And uh, there are some Bibles there in the seats, but I I, uh, I apologize. I forgot to see what page number that's on. Anybody got that? 1018, oh wait, that's what it's been for the last month, right? Ten, page 1018, right, because three weeks in chapter one and now chapter two, all right. So yeah, we're going to be looking at Second Peter chapter two, verses one through 10 uh, this morning. And just as I was thinking about this text, I, I thought of a novel that I read. It's a pretty popular novel in the, okay, I'm going to lose a bunch of it right now, science fiction genre. Please stick with me, because uh, I'll talk about sex later. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and they know I can do it oh, right now. Uh, that couple of you guys were in the class. Wait, wait, never mind. Yeah, uh, science fiction genre, and it's called Ender's Game. Orson Scott Card is the author. Anybody read that? Ender's Game? All right, yeah. One or two. Awesome. Uh, you don't have to have read the book to, to, to get this thought. In this novel, um, futuristic Earth fighting a terrible uh, enemy, they're called buggers, okay? Just an alien race who are insects, is that not an enemy you could hate? You know, I mean, who, ugh, insects, unless you're an entomologist, I guess you're, but anyway. Um, this is the problem with me and illustrations, I tell too much of the story, yeah. So anyway, um, Young boy, his name is Andrew Wiggin. They call him Ender for short. He's shipped up to the space station. He's going to be trained to be the next military leader to fight against this dreaded enemy. And they use these games. They use these games, video games, as a training tool. And so Ender excels at those video games. And as he gets good at the video games, he plays another video game. And he plays another video game. And in the last video game, which he thinks it's a big test, he's actually commanding the fleets. And he destroys an entire race of aliens while he's playing a game. The whole time he's ju- he thinks he's just playing a game, but in reality he's, he's committing xenocide. He kills an entire alien race, destroys every one of them, destroys their home world. Um, all while he thinks he's playing a game, and what he realizes is that it wasn't a game. He was never playing a game. It wasn't a game. It's not a game. Well, that's the title of the sermon this morning. It's not a game. Our text today reminds us that God does not play games. We're dealing with serious and weighty matters, and God does not 
uh, stay away from serious and weighty matters, but yet God does, and he doesn't play games with sin and rebellion and false teaching and those who would pervert the gospel. No, God deals seriously and directly and in judgment with those who are false and pervert the gospel and blaspheme him and deny him. God judges. In fact, we will see in the text this morning, the main theme is that God will surely rescue the godly and put the unrighteous under judgment because God doesn't play games. In Peter's day, there were those who disputed the reality of God's judgment, just like there were some who disputed that Christ would return. We looked at that last week um, as we concluded uh, chapter one. There were those who, who just said, no, Jesus isn't going to return. This life goes on uh, and on, and we don't have to worry about that. And, then, and, then, and there are also those, that, the same ones who taught false, falsely that God's judgment is not real. It's just a story uh, an allegory. It's just there to um, scare you and manipulate you with fear into doing something. Okay, so they, they, they would teach that God's judgment is not a reality. And then they would also say, because ju- God's judgment is not a reality, then it's okay to, to live however you want to live because God's judgment isn't really um, going to happen. It's not a reality. So we can live uh, with license and sensuality, lasciviousness. That's okay. In fact, you're a good Christian if you just let go and follow all of your lustful desires. They would teach that because God's judgment isn't real. And don't we kind of experience that same thing today? I mean, um, if we took a straw poll this morning, how many of you have contemplated God's judgment today, this week, this month, this year, ever? I mean, is the judgment of God a reality for us today, and how about our culture? Does our culture give any sort of uh, thought to the idea of an ultimate judgment beyond this life? Um, I think we know the answer to that is no. And then, and then, what about this living with license, living with this idea that you know God's going to forgive me for my sin, so I'll just sin. So that grace may abound, you know, so that I can continue to experience God's forgiveness. What, what about, uh, do we, there's some who think that way, live that way. Uh, do we share in the same condition and issues that Peter faced in his day? I, I think we'd have to say yes. So let's look together at the text today. Second Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly... If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was torturing his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. 
Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion despise and despising authority. Actually, I guess I should have said verse 1 through 10a. We'll look at the second half of 10 next week. So in chapter 1, because we need some context, in chapter 1, we saw that the confirmation of God's word leads to confidence in his promises, his precious and very great promises, which brings power for godliness, which gives personal and experiential confirmation of our election. So chapter 1 exhorts us to godliness, focusing on the provision of God. And now, Chapter 2 has the same goal, just a different method. Uh, we are exhorted to godliness, focusing on the, the dire consequences of ungodliness. Chapter 2 reminds us that there are those who will teach false and who will be false. Chapter 1 ends with this explanation and confirmation of the witness of Scripture being from God. It's that God spoke, you know, spoke to men who are carried along by the Holy Spirit, reminding us that all the Scripture is from God, so we, have, we can trust the witness of Scripture because it is from God. But then at the same time, even though we have this witness of Scripture and men spoken, spoken to by God and carried along by the Holy Spirit, uh, revealing God's truth and it's trustworthy. At the same time, there are those who were false and they taught false. They claimed to have a prophetic word, claimed to be teaching truth, but yet they taught false. Well, we're going to look at the false teachers, the reality of judgment, and the rescue of the righteous this morning as we think about this main idea of, of God surely rescuing the godly and, and putting the unrighteous under judgment. So first, we, just, we want to think about the idea of the false teachers. Well, who are they and what are they like? Well, the text tells us that, first of all, in verse 1, they bring destructive heresies. Destructive heresies. Well, um, uh, Heresy is simply an untruth, right? I mean, a heresy is that which is presented as truth, but yet is not true. It is false. It is a lie. And within the community of faith, that's very destructive. Because, well, you know, it's not even within the community of faith, though, really, right? I mean, isn't a lie that is believed and acted upon, destructive. I mean, think about the atrocities committed because of false ideas. Think of the Holocaust. Atrocity based on false ideas. There there are entire nations who have a government system that, by definition, is atheistic, denies the existence of God, and even goes as far as as outlawing the practice of worshiping God because of an idea, because of a falsehood um, that is accepted as true. we look at history and see atrocity after atrocity committed because of false ideas that are believed upon, believed to be true, and acted upon as if they were true. So these false teachers that are present among God's people who are themselves false and teaching false, they, have, they, they bring these destructive, harmful untruths, presenting them as truth. They deny the master. Look again, verse 1 says they even deny the master. They deny Christ. They deny the truth about Jesus. When one proclaims an untruth, then they are denying the truth. And so when one proclaims an untruth about Jesus, then they are denying the truth about Christ 
therefore denying the master. And these false teachers that Peter is exposing to the churches in Asia Minor, Asia Minor, they are going as far as denying Christ because they deny truth about him and present untruth about him. And then it says in verse 2 that the way of the truth is blasphemed. Well, how do we to understand that? How are we to understand this phrase that by these false teachers, what they say, they are blaspheming the way of truth? Well, another way to say that is they are perverting the gospel. The way of truth, we need to understand the way of truth as the gospel. The gospel is indeed the way of truth. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes uh, to the Father except by me. Jesus himself is the truth. The gospel is centered on Christ. It is the truth about Christ. It is the way to the truth. It is the way of truth. And it is being blasphemed by these who are false, these who are teaching falsely. They are perverting the gospel. So these, these who are false, I have teachers in parentheses, because um, if you are false, you're teaching something. So you are a false teacher. Okay, so we don't need to understand that only those who stand in front of others and, and teach untruth are false teachers. Those who are, are false are teaching something falsely. Just, and, and we see that actually in verses 2 and 3 because the text tells us that some follow. There are the, those who are false teachers. Some followed them in their sensuality. So now we're getting away from doctrine taught, but now lifestyle represented. You see, they are false teachers not only because of what they taught, but also they're false teachers because of the way that they lived, because some followed them in their sensuality. That's what the text says. So, so not, only, not only do they bring about destructive heresies, deny Christ, and pervert the gospel by what they proclaim as truth when it is untrue, but also they bring in destructive heresies, deny Christ, and pervert the gospel by living falsely. They, they lived lives of sensuality. And in the most general terms, sensuality is simply out of control, lacking control. But really, in, in, in the word, in, in the language of Scripture, that word is used primarily for sexual sin, sexual immorality. So, so really what Peter is pointing to is that these who are false and teach falsely, not only are they making uh, proclamations as true, which are untruth, but also they're living lives of sexual immorality. And by their very example of false living, others are following that example of false living and also engaging in false living of sexual immorality. And can I just say for a moment, you know, that sexual immorality is old-fashioned, you know, we often hear from our culture that biblical thinking about sex is old-fashioned. So this idea of a sexual relationship only within marriage, somehow that's old-fashioned, you know? And, and this idea of purity before marriage is old-fashioned, and the idea of, of, of a monogamous Sexual relationship is somehow old-fashioned. Well, this text right here shows us that sexual immorality is what's old-fashioned. It's been around for ages. It's been around forever. So don't, don't think that some dude who tweets about his sexual exploits is somehow progressive or modern. No, that's just old-fashioned sexual immorality. And, and some, some performer who writes a song explaining their sexual immorality is, I was just born that way, okay? That's not new. That's just good old, eh, bad old, old-fashioned sexual immorality. 
sexual perversion and sexual immorality has been around as long as mankind has been around. It's, it's what's really old-fashioned. But there are those who were living this sensuous and sexual, sexually immoral lifestyle. And because of that, they perverted the gospel, denied Christ, and, and lent credence to these destructive heresies. Now, we kind of get a little picture of what some of these destructive heresies were. Obviously, they were teaching that, that, that free sex was good for Christians to engage in because God's judgment is not real. It's not a reality. That's not really not going to happen. And Christ isn't really going to return because he doesn't need to return because there's no real judgment. So anything goes, all right? And then they lived a lifestyle that, that supported that untruth, that destructive heresy. It, it was a heresy, and then it became destructive when supported by the lifestyle. And then also verse 3 tells us that in greed, they exploited with false words. So greed is also part of that perverting of the gospel and denial of Christ and, again, lending credence to those destructive heresies. These false teachers were greedy, and they exploited the people of God with false words. That was part of who and what these false teachers are. Again, certainly greed is a sin. It's dishonoring to God. It's not what God calls his people to, to be and to do. He's not, he does not call us to be greedy. Okay? He does not call us to act in, in greediness. Okay? But yet the opposite. Okay? And the point that I think we need to see here is that, again, it's behavior, it's lifestyle that's also part of being false and being a false teacher. Peter, Peter points to their sensuality. He points to their greed. He, he points to their exploitation of God's people. All of those are behaviors. Those are all lifestyle characteristics, but yet... Peter identifies those along with the false teaching, meaning that those he's referring to are false, and they are false teachers. But really, they are false first, and then they teach something that is false. I, I think the question that we've got to ask ourselves at this point is, is where is the false teacher in me? Where, where am I being false and teaching that which is false? And I'm not, you know, not necessarily by what I stand and proclaim when I'm here on this platform in this context of preaching God's word. You know, am I guilty of being a false teacher there? But how about in my lifestyle? How am I being a false teacher in the way that I live? What, what does my lifestyle say about the truth that I proclaim? Am I proclaiming truth with my mouth and living untruth with my, my hands and my feet? You know, there's a song that, um, that I used to listen to when I was young. Um, I, I'm not going to recommend this song. I'm not even going to talk about the artist or anything like that. Just the name of the song was COD. And here's one of the lines in that song. Sorry that I'm, uh, it's Kenny Bloom. Yeah. I'm not even, I'm sorry I'm admitting that I even you know, listen to this, but it's one of those deals, you listen to it when you're young, the lyrics are stuck in your head, COD, care of the devil, the devil in me. That's the words, part of the words of that song, COD, care of the devil, the devil in me. And, and I don't think the songwriter was asking, hey, I want to purge, I want to I recognize the, the, the devil that's in me, the way in which I identify more with Satan than with Christ, and I, and I, want, to, I, I want, in the power of the Holy Spirit, um, through the preaching and, and right application of God's word, have that removed from my life. I don't think that's what he was saying, but that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying we need to ask ourselves. Like, where do I see the false teacher in me? Where do I see the devil in me? Where do I identify more 
uh, or, or where I identify less with Christ and more with the world. And if I identify more with the world than with Christ in my life, then really I'm identifying with the enemy because um, the reality is Satan, the devil, in Scripture is referred to as the God of this world, right? The God of this world's system and way of thinking and way of living. And so when I identify with that, I'm identifying with the enemy. Where do we see the false teacher in us? Where do you see the false teacher where do I see the false teacher in me? So we have the, the false teacher. But then we also see the reality of judgment. Remember, some of those false teachers were saying, there is no judgment. It's not going to happen. But yet, Peter says, well, we, we have evidence of the reality of God's judgment. And we see that in verses 4 through 10. In fact, Peter gives us three illustrations. I, I'm not, I don't need another illustration for the rest of the sermon Thank God, right? Okay, because let's face it, Jim's filter isn't always on, right? We know that, okay. And I just apologize in advance for that. And usually, usually my wife helps me with my filter, but I, those are the spotlights and I can't see her face. So. so thankfully, Peter gives us three illustrations right here to, to convince us of the reality of judgment. Verse 4, he talks about fallen angels. He says, now, God cast down out of heaven those angels who rebelled along with Satan. We understand, right, from Scripture that, that the devil, Satan, was once an angel. In fact, one of the most beautiful of angels, okay, and he rebelled against God's authority. The Bible doesn't say how old Satan was when he rebelled against God's authority, but I'm guessing 15. But, but here was God's response to Satan and these angels, a third of the angels in heaven who rebelled against him. He judged them, cast them out of heaven and into hell. In fact, the text puts it this way. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Wow. I mean, that's, that's pretty heavy, right? I mean, is that clearly judgment? I mean, are you confused? Is, is being cast out of heaven into hell and put into chains of gloomy darkness, can that be confused for something other than judgment? Is that maybe just a change of scenery? No! It's judgment, right? Does anybody doubt that? No, clearly that is God's judgment upon angels who have sinned and rebelled against his authority. And so Peter gives us that historical evidence that God's judgment is real. But he doesn't end there. In verse 5, he, he talks about the flood. You remember the flood, that story that we, that we treat as a um, cute little story about animals. And we tell it to children. We make toys, Noah's Ark and all that, you know, right? Yeah. I mean, gosh, if we told children that story in maybe the way that the Scripture tells it, <laughs> we'd probably scare them to death, right? They would hate all animals and boats forever, right? Okay? Because, because here's what, it's, that Noah's Ark is not what that's, what that's about. It's about God's judgment and wrath upon sin. God looked at the world that he had created and he saw that, that the intention of man's heart was evil all the time. That's what God saw when he looked at mankind, that all they knew to do and all they wanted to do and all that they intended to do was sin and rebel against him. And so God poured out his wrath on earth and there were these he saved, Noah and his family. He, he, he preserved them, he rescued them, but all the rest of humanity and all other flesh, non-human Flesh on earth except for two of every kind of animal. God completely destroyed by drowning it all. 
The flood is nothing less, nothing less than the greatest outpouring of God's wrath on humanity that the world has ever seen. That's what the flood is. It's God's judgment on unrighteousness and ungodliness. And it's a reality. It's real. That's what Peter wants us to see, that in the flood, in the account of the flood, we see God judging human beings for their sin, rebellion, their ungodliness, their unrighteousness. And it's real. And then, and then he goes on in verse 6 to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, we, we read about this in, in Genesis. There are these two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, and there was... Wow, I'm, just, I'm not even sure how to describe Sodom and Gomorrah. Have you ever been to New Orleans during Mardi Gras? I, I expect it's something like that. You know, I've been there. and uh, <laughs> okay. But Sodom and Gomorrah was filled with those who were living sensuous, sexually immoral lives. They had that kind of anything-goes attitude. And the evil... Sin rebellion of that place was visible. God saw that. It, it, it rose up to him almost like, you know, just a stench. You know, when, when something just is really gross and nasty and just stinks and you get a whiff of it, you know, you know that feeling? That's kind of the picture we need to get of God you know, just getting a whiff smell of the stench of the sexual immorality and sin in Sodom and Gomorrah. And God responded to Sodom and Gomorrah by complete and utter destruction. Fire falling from heaven, destroying everybody and everything in Sodom and Gomorrah. All of, all destroyed. And then in verses 9 and 10, we get the prediction of God's judgment. Peter gives us three illustrations, fallen angels, the flood, and Sodom and Gomorrah of the reality of of God's judgment. And then in verses 9 and 10, there's this prediction of God's judgment. It says... Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. There's the prediction of judgment. Peter says, God will keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Predicting there is a day of judgment coming. There will be a day of judgment. Just as sure as God has judged in the past, just as surely as God cast down fallen angels, as surely as God judged the earth with a global flood and, and destroyed all flesh on the earth except those few, and as surely as God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sin, God will judge those who are unrighteous and under punishment. And as he says earlier in the text, verse 3, their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. God's destruction of the unrighteous, his judgment upon the, the false is not asleep. It's deferred. But they are kept under punishment until the day their judgment is due. That is the prediction of God's word concerning God's judgment upon the false. I, I think a question that we need to ask ourselves this morning as we contemplate God's judgment is, do you contemplate God's judgment? I asked the question at the beginning is, have you thought about God's judgment today, this week, this month, this year? Do you fear God's judgment for yourself? Do you fear 
the judgment of God for others? Are, 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 are there those around you who are false? Are, are, are there those around you who would be counted as unrighteous because they are apart from Christ, because they do not have faith in Jesus, because they are still dead in their trespasses and in their sins in which they once walked? They're still captive to the enemy. They're still in the kingdom of darkness. Are, are there those around you who, who's, who, who are kept under punishment and the prediction of judgment is still on their lives? Do you fear judgment for them? Or do you simply just not think about it? I, I'm, I, I got out of it, so I'm not going to think about it. Is, is, that, is that our attitude? I think we need to, we need to seriously contemplate God's judgment. It's, it's a reality. It's a truth about God. He judges. He judges the unrighteous. It's a truth. Do we not want to know the truth and be set free from it? Is it? Isn't it interesting to think that even the truth about God's judgment sets us free? We are freed by knowing the truth. So we see the false teachers. Who are they? What are they like? We also look at the reality. We've looked at the reality of God's judgment, the reality of judgment, but then also we need to look at the rescue of the righteous. And again, we go back to those illustrations that Peter so conveniently provided for us. Um, first, Noah and his family, verse 5. It says, okay, first, God did not spare the ancient world, but in judgment punished them by destroying all flesh on earth. But he rescued these seven. He rescued Noah and his family. And God calls, or the scripture calls, Noah a herald of righteousness. A herald of righteousness. That's what Noah is called. And so God rescues Noah and his family. Now, that's a good thing, right? Because just as the, the judgment of the flood gives us evidence of the reality of God's judgment. The rescue of Noah and his family gives us evidence of, of God's rescue of the righteous. But what really made Noah righteous in God's eyes? Was it his sterling reputation, his completely and perfect moral character? Was it? No. You know why? What happened after they got off the boat? Right? When it's just Noah and his family, is, that's all, all there is left on earth. Noah and his family. What does God look at and say about humanity? The same thing he said before the flood. The intention of their heart is toward evil all the time. Even in Noah and his family, because no, no sooner did Noah and his family get off the ark that, they, that Noah fell into sin along with his sons. They fell into sin. They rebelled and sinned against God, disobeyed him. It, it wasn't because of Noah's righteous or, uh, lifestyle, his, his personal holiness. It wasn't his perfect moral character that made him righteous. It was God making Noah righteous. It was God calling Noah righteous. In choosing Noah to, to build the ark, to preach the truth, proclaim repentance to the sinful world around him, to his family. Think about that. Noah was not an only child. He had brothers and sisters, and his parents, so he had brothers and sisters, so he, he had brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, and cousins, okay? And so even to them, Noah is proclaiming the coming judgment of God and calling them to repentance, and they rejected. Can you imagine? Uh, just, uh, just, this is a parenthetical statement. Okay, just, so I'm putting parentheses around this. Uh, you know how the scripture tells us that God shut the door uh, of the ark and it remained shut? I actually believe that was a mercy of God upon Noah. 
And here's why. Noah had family members. Guess where they probably were as the rains came and the floodwaters rose? I'm, I'm using a little bit of imagination here, but I don't think it's a stretch to think that they were outside the ark beating on the door saying, Noah, let me in. You were right. But God's the one that shut the door. Uh, Noah, had no, Noah had no control over the door at that point. And I think that's a mercy of God upon him and his family. But what made Noah righteous was not his behavior, but the call of God, the effectual call of God in his life. That's what made Noah righteous. And then verse 7 talks about the rescue of righteous Lot. So, Lot's living in Sodom and Gomorrah, but he's righteous, even though he's living in Sodom and Gomorrah. And these angels come. And, and the, we're told in Scripture that the men of the city wanted to know uh, these male guests, angels, who are in the form of, of men. In other words, um, in their sexual immorality, they wanted to have a sexual relationship with these men. Okay? That, that, that's what the men of the city wanted. And so righteous Lot, what does he do? Offers his virgin daughters to these men. Do you sense the dripping sarcasm in the word righteous there? Okay, please understand this. The, the scripture does not affirm Lot for offering his daughters to the, the, the sex-crazed men of the city. In fact, we see in what happens next that that was actually a lack of trust by Lot in God's power because what, did they, what happened next? The angels struck the men in the city blind and they couldn't find the door to Lot's house or his daughters or them. God rescued them. But he's called righteous Lot. Why? Well, it wasn't because of his perfect moral behavior. In fact, what happens when Lot and his daughters escape the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? They live in a cave. It's just the three of them, okay? And then here's what the daughters do. Hey, let's get our dad drunk, lay with him, conceive, and have children so we can carry on our line. Now, do you think Lot didn't know what was going on? Like, well, it's just me and my two daughters, and one of them got pregnant. How did that happen? And then, oh, and the other one did too. And I remember drinking a lot of wine. I mean, Lot knows what's going on, okay? Lot, Lot's lifestyle isn't righteous. He is not without sin, okay? But why is he called righteous Lot? Because of the call of God in his life. God calls Lot righteous. God makes him righteous, by God's choosing and calling of Lot, Lot is righteous. God rescues those he calls righteous. God will surely rescue the righteous. Look at the promise of rescue in verses 9 and 10. Actually, just 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Here is what Peter is saying. We have this evidence of God rescuing the righteous. And by the way, those who are righteous are those who God calls righteous, not because of righteousness of their own, but God grants them, gives them righteousness because he calls them to be his own. He chooses them to be his own. Therefore, they are righteous. Though they commit sin... They commit what we might consider grievous sin. They're still sinners, but yet God has called them righteous, and he rescues those he calls to be righteous. And the greatest expression of God's rescue of the righteous is in Christ, right? I mean, is that, in fact, is that not the gospel, God rescuing those he calls righteous? I mean, don't we understand that God who is, is, is perfect? 
He is holy. There is none like him. He is God and there is no other. He is God and there is none like him. He declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things yet to come, saying my counsel will stand and I will accomplish all of my purpose. Isn't God holy? There is no spot or shade or blemish of, of evil or unrighteousness or impurity in him, but he is, he is uh, perfect in his perfection. He is perfect in his holiness. He's perfect in his love. He is perfect in his judgments. He is, he is perfect in his purity. And this God who is perfectly holy and righteous, he's created mankind in his own image, but man has sinned and rebelled against this perfect and holy God. And therefore, God's, God is separated, or man, I'm sorry, it's not God separated from man, but man is separated from God because of man's sin, rebellion against God. And there is no hope for man to, to, to come before and have a relationship with or have the favor of this holy and perfect and righteous God. But yet God, for his own glory, to rescue those he calls righteous in love, sends his one and only son, actually God in flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, and that, that one becomes sin for us. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. So the righteousness of God is given, imputed to us in Christ because of Jesus' perfect life that he lived, his sacrificial substitution, substitutionary death on the cross, Becoming sin for us, taking our sin on him, taking the wrath of God that's meant for us on himself, and then being buried in a tomb and on the third day being raised to life so that if we respond, and response is necessary, in repentance and faith, then we have the forgiveness of sin and hope of eternal life. We have rescue. We are rescued by God in Christ because of the gospel. False teachers and teaching is a reality. We must guard against denying Christ and perverting the gospel by believing untruth. So in other words, guard your doctrine. Guard your doctrine. I think that's clearly a, a lesson from the text today. Guard your doctrine. Believe the truth. Uphold the truth. Do not pervert the gospel and deny Christ by believing untruth, upholding untruth. But false living is a great danger as well. Not just false teaching, but false living is a great danger. We must cling to Christ and live in his power. Hear me. Hear me now. Cling to Christ okay, and live in his power to guard against denying him and perverting the gospel by living untruth. Guard your doctrine, orthodoxy. Guard your practice orthopraxy. Believe rightly, live rightly, all to the glory of God in the power of Christ, clinging to, trusting in him. Contemplate God's judgment. Touched on this earlier, but we, we must contemplate God's judgment it's got to be part of our thinking. We can't just ignore it. We can't say, hey, I belong to Jesus. My faith is in Christ. I am saved. Therefore, I'm rescued from the judgment. So I don't need to think about that. That's not true. Okay. God's judgment is a reality. It's part of the counsel of God's word. It is a truth about God. And are we not called to love God with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength? And part of loving God with all of our mind is exploring and meditating upon all the truth concerning God? Yes. So just simply to follow the great command, we need to contemplate on this truth. And, and isn't that part of knowing God? Knowing Christ is knowing all that there is revealed about him and his word and the, the reality of God's judgment is revealed about him and his word. So we, are, we need to know and meditate and think about that. 
But there's, there's even more. There's more reason. That's one, and that's a great reason. But there's more reason to meditate upon God's judgment. Because we'll rejoice all the more in our rescue. Right? I mean, if you know what you've been rescued from... Don't you appreciate the rescue more? Don't you, don't you rejoice more in the rescue when you know what you've been rescued from? When you know what judgment is like? When, when we read in the scripture about being cast into the lake of fire where there is eternal torment and weeping and gnashing and teeth and, and, you know, where the worm does not die. And I mean, all of that. I mean, don't we need to think about that so that we rejoice all the more in our rescue? And then finally, don't we need to contemplate the judgment for the sake of those who are around us, who are in danger of God's judgment, who, who are under punishment till the day of judgment. Those who are living without Christ, those who are living in their deadness and sin and, and ungodliness and unrighteousness, rejecting the truth, suppressing the truth and ungodliness. For the sake of them and our response to them, wouldn't it do well for us to contemplate God's judgment? And then finally, already alluded to this, and I just want you to know there's three finallys, okay? So this is only the second finally. Finally, rejoice in rescue. Rejoice in rescue. That's a good thing. It's a glorious thing. It's a great thing. Those of us who are in Christ have been rescued. Hallelujah. Rejoice in our rescue. Flee the wrath to come by joining with Christ through repentance and faith. Be identified with him by turning from sin and putting your faith in Christ as God calls you to do so and empowers you to do so. Rejoice in rescue. Today in our text, we, we, we've identified the false teachers, who they are, what they're like. We've seen the reality uh, of God's judgment, some illustrations, and then the prom of the prediction of judgment, and we've seen the rescue of the righteous. We've seen a couple illustrations of that, uh, and then the promise of rescue, that God surely will rescue the godly and put the righteous under judgment. Bow your heads with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you that your judgment is a reality. God, I pray that we would contemplate upon your judgment, even though many of us today are here united with Christ in faith and know that we will not face this judgment, that we have been rescued from it. But God, yet remind us of your judgment. Lead us to contemplate your judgment so that we might rejoice even more in our rescue that we might be even more fervent to pray for those who are under judgment to be grieved by the destruction of the ungodly, so much so that we would proclaim the good news of the gospel to all, that they too might escape the judgment as you call them to repentance and faith. God, I ask that we would, God, that we would not be false, that we would indeed guard our doctrine and guard our practice, that through neither untruth of doctrine or untruth in living, that we would n never deny Christ or pervert the gospel. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.